Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 24th, 2022. It's lunchtime on the West Coast of the United States. Uh, the news is, of course, bad today. Very grim news coming out of um, uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, the storm seems to have arrived, at least the storm that Joe Biden predicted. Vladimir Putin, according to CNN headlines a few minutes ago, has unleashed war on the Ukraine. Um, the Post, the Washington Post concurs. Russia strikes Ukraine from multiple directions. Biden vows consequences, the Post leads with. Um, the Wall Street Journal, perhaps the most conservative of mainstream American newspapers, acknowledges that Russia has attacked Ukraine on a broad front. And the New York Times, uh, which is, I guess, the old lady or the gray lady of American journalism, leads with America under, uh, not America, Ukraine under full-scale attack. Biden says Putin chose this war and Russia will bear the consequences. Um, one wonders what those consequences will be. Not everyone, though, in America seems to be in an agreement about the significance of this Russian invasion of the Ukraine. According to, according to the Times, um, Fox News hosts like Tucker Carlson has played down the Russian attack, and the Republican Party seems divided on it. Uh, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger uh, yesterday assailed Trump and Tucker Carlson for comments which they say are supportive of, Ru of Russia, at least not uh, outraged by the Russian behavior. So this approaching storm is complicated. Um, there was a book written uh, in the Star Wars series called The Approaching Storm, uh, which was fictional, set on the planet Ancyon. But there's another book, The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and their clash over America's future, a book about Americans' entry into the First World War, which might well be relevant today in late February 2022. And I'm Thrilled that uh, the author of that book, Neil Lankto, is joining us from his home just outside Philadelphia near Bryn Mawr College. Uh, Neil, how relevant is the approaching storm today as Russian troops invade the Ukraine? Well, I think we should tell the audience that uh, this this booking was made a week ago, wasn't it? So you didn't even know. But it, well, I knew, it, Neil. I know everything. Uh, Vladimir Putin had already told me what he was it, it, to do. it turned out to be very telling. And, and when I read the news this morning, I, I thought the same thing. You know, it's the, these issues that never really do go away. And it's also, you know, it's America's, what does America do when there's these international conflicts around the globe? How do we respond? And what is our responsibility? And that's a big part of what my book is about, but certainly is is very relevant right now with the situation in Ukraine, uh, where everyone's wondering what is our responsibility and what should we do? Yeah, one wonders um, who knows what's going to happen here. Uh, but there are characters involved in this. Donald Trump, of course, Joe Biden, uh, uh, maybe uh, even, uh, even uh, Tucker Carlson. Your book... Um, in terms of 
the the debate about whether or not America should become involved in the First World War focuses on three characters, Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and Jane Addams. Um, before we get to those characters, though, uh, Neil, not everyone watching this show will be as familiar with what happened in 1917 uh, as you are. Tell me what the world was going through in 1916, 1917, as America debated whether or not it should enter the First World War. The war, of course, began in 1914. Well, you have this incredibly bloody, uh, unprecedented global conflict going on, you know, beginning in 1914. Um, no one could believe such a thing could be happening in the 20th century. It seemed like something out of the, the Napoleonic era, you know, the, the great European powers uh, duking it out in this way. And to America... Yeah, and as you say, nobody expected it. Everyone expected it to be like a 19th century war. War broke out uh, in, in, in the summer of 1914. Everyone expected it to be over by Christmas, but it had barely begun, of course. Exactly. I, I think it was, it was a shock when it happened, and it was a shock in America that it continued, and so many men were being, were being killed and wounded, which is un unbelievable. So... Millions. I mean, now you have literally the millions. I mean, astonishing numbers that completely um, dwarf even the numbers of people killed in the American Civil War, which up until that point had been the bloodiest war in history. Exactly, exactly. And Americans, when this happens, are not really sure what side they should take. Now, Woodrow Wilson, the president of the time, has this idea, well, you know, we should be neutral. And his idea is if we're neutral, we'll be in a position where we can help to make peace and have some impact in shaping the peace process uh, in the future when that does arrive. That's what Wilson is hoping to do. The problem is that many Americans are, are naturally gonna take sides. I mean, what, what I was thinking about today is in 1914, when the Germans invaded Belgium right after the war began, that immediately turned a lot of Americans against the German side in 1914. Yeah, let's talk, because it's still an enormously controversial subject, Neil, the, the causes of the First World War. Uh, when I was a history student at university, I spent many hours trying to figure out who was to blame. It, it seems like one of those Agatha Christie um, mysteries where everyone really was to blame. What was the common perception, though, in America as for the actual causes of the First World War? Well, it's funny because Woodrow Wilson never quite understood it. And he, he once said in a speech that, you know, everyone is to blame, both sides are to blame, and no one really has the, has the, the, uh, uh, the, the high road in this particular um, episode. I think most Americans had very little idea, did not quite understand it. Uh, many Americans at the time of the war didn't know much about foreign affairs, didn't care much about foreign affairs, which is, is like today. Some things United haven't States. changed, Neil, that's for no, sure. No, they have not changed and, at and, all. And to what extent were people's ethnic background the, 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 the predicator for which side? So obviously German immigrants would have been sympathetic to the, uh, the Germans, um, perhaps the Irish as well, whereas people from uh, Britain would have been much more sympathetic to the, uh, the Allies. Exactly. I think those those groups lined up pretty predictably. Uh, but then you had, you know, sort of the great masses in the Midwest and in, and in the South and in the West Coast who just didn't really care one way or the other. If push came to shove, they'd probably say, yeah, we're, we're in, we prefer if 
the Allies win this war, but it's certainly not America's fight, and we're not particularly vested in it. Um, that would change a little bit later, you know, when you start seeing German submarines um, sinking ships and Americans being caught in the crossfire. Then you start seeing a little bit more concern and interest over what's going on abroad. But I think Americans, by and large, as you mentioned, then and now are just most are not familiar and are not particularly interested in what's going on outside of their own uh, nation, which is it's not a good thing, of course. It's, it's actually an unfortunate thing. Uh, Neil, you, this is the first sort of mainstream history book you've, you've written. You used to write books on baseball. You wrote one book, uh, Negro League Baseball. So you're quite familiar with the history of uh, African-Americans. Did they take a side or were they most African-Americans, given their own travails in, in America, were they relatively indifferent? I would say relatively indifferent until America joins the war. And when America does... Uh, join the war in 1917, many African-Americans uh, want to serve if they can. They want to show they are as loyal and as patriotic as any other American. Of course, they will be allowed to serve eventually, but in segregated units, which will continue even in world, into World War II in the United States. Um, but when the war, when the European war begins in 1914, I think the typical, um, you know, most African-Americans are, are more concerned with their own problems in this country. They were disappointed in Woodrow. Quite Wilson. understandably, given given how deep those problems were. Um, Neil, what about the politics? I mean, obviously, when the war broke out in 1914, the Russian Empire, the Tsar was on the side of the British and the, the French. By 1917, uh, there'd been a revolution in Russia. What was the left? What we talked about the divisions in the Republican Party, conservatives over Russia. Who was most divided, the left or the right, on the war uh, in America in 1917? I would say, probably say the left was. Um, when America goes to war, some on the left will sort of set aside their ideological views and will support the war effort. Uh, then there will be others, particularly the socialists. Um, will be completely, you know, war is always wrong. This is, you know, this is a capitalist uh, fight. Um, and we, Which we, was the standard position of, of Trotsky and Lenin. Exactly. And Rosa exactly. Luxemburg. Most, most, of, most European socialists were against the war, although there were some German socialists who were actually in favor of the war. So it's complicated even in Europe. Yeah, I mean, you have someone like Eugene Debs, uh, who was, you know, he, he was one of the leading socialists in the United States. And, and a powerful Debs, man in, 19, in, the, in the 19 teens. Yes, exactly. And Debs would get himself arrested during the war uh, for basically, he made a speech saying that, you know, you young American boys don't deserve to be cannon fodder. And he'll get prosecuted under the Espionage Act and thrown into, thrown into jail. So there are those like him who who really do not change at all. And Jane Adams herself, who's you know the, the sort of the yeah. past. So let's yeah, let's get into these. So these three characters. I mean, obviously, everyone would assume mm -hmm. that you would include uh, Woodrow Wilson as a, a major protagonist, but others will be more surprised by the choice of Teddy Roosevelt and certainly by Jane Adams. Why are these two other characters, Teddy Roosevelt, and particularly? Jane Adams, why is she so relevant in the debate about whether or not America should enter the war? Well, it's funny because Jane Adams is probably the least remembered in the in the 21st century, but at the time she was extremely famous. She was probably one of the most famous American women uh, in the early 1900s, maybe one of the most famous in the world, I think perhaps second to Helen Keller. 
she had done a great deal of, of, of really wonderful work working among the immigrant groups in Chicago and then had sort of become involved in almost every liberal cause known to man. Uh, so she was sort of a, a professional do-gooder on one level, but there was another radical, more radical side to her. Uh, she got very involved in the pacifist movement. Uh, she was very involved in civil rights. So she was really like a champion liberal at this time. Uh, certainly far as she was right. the um, the AOC of her day. Would that be fair to say? <laughs> that, that might be a good way of, of, she, of putting she it. She doesn't uh, quite look like older. AOC. A AOC, I think, has a different sort of fashion sense, but certainly. Uh, it's, it, I, I've said that in the book, actually, that her, her look kind of belied her actual radicalism because she looked, you know, like a little sensible, you know, kind of a school marm look. Uh, and that's not an atypical picture of her, but she was someone who was, as I said, very, 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 very far to the left. I'm not and quite she was influential far. there. She wasn't just a, a leftist who sort of was part of an echo chamber of, of, of left-wing salons. She actually was listened to by a broader uh, community of Americans. Is that fair? Yeah, she was, she was influential because sort of the middle class uh, respected her and thought she was, thought she was uh, you know, uh, doing the right thing. But as she started to take more unpopular stances, for example, towards the war, when she, she's a pacifist, um, she's a pacifist in a sense, not so much a, a um, nonviolent pacifist, but someone more of an internationalist who believed that there's got right. to be. And, a and there was long problem. roots of that pacifism, of Quakerism in American history and culture. Uh, one man who certainly wasn't a pacifist was the third uh, figure, the third central figure in the book, Teddy Roosevelt. Um, he was a former president. What's his significance in all this? Well, he was such a dominant figure in American life and American politics. Um, by, by 1914, he'd been out of the White House for five years, and boy, did he want to get back in. And, and that was sort of after he left the White Who House. does that was... remind you of, Neil? <laughs> we had, it was interesting. We did a show uh, last year with the nature writer, David Gessner, who wrote a book about Teddy Roosevelt's, uh, retraced Teddy Roosevelt's nature uh, travels. And we did a, a show entitled on the similarities between Trump and Roosevelt. So uh, this is something that has come up before on our show. There, there, there are some similarities. I, I certainly would say that. And uh, Roosevelt, you know, he, he had been a Republican. He had left the party and set up his own party, the Progressive Party, uh, ran for president in 1912, got beaten by Wilson and was hoping to form, keep his party going, but it was starting, starting to fade. And then when the war comes, he, he cannot stand that Wilson's in the White House. He, couldn't, he didn't like Wilson to begin with. He detested him. He felt that everything Wilson was doing uh, in foreign affairs. Um, well, they were their sort of reverse personalities. Wilson was so uptight. Roosevelt was so ebullient. I mean, there is a little bit of the Biden-Trump split. Yeah, I think that would be a good way of putting it. Although... One of the things I get into in this book is Wilson, you know, everyone thought he was sort of a prim and proper former professor. Uh, and in the middle of some of these crises during the war, he's carrying on this this torrid affair with, well, I mean, he was torrid. He's courting a widow. How's that? He's, he's, he was a widower. At least it wasn't, uh, Jane, at least it wasn't Jane Addams, right? <laughs> no, it was not. Um, but he's, he's, he's writing these lovey-dovey letters in the middle of the Lusitania crisis, I mean, multiple letters back and forth. I mean, no, if the, if the public had known about it at the time, they would have been absolutely shocked. But he's All also, Wilson is a profoundly flawed character because of his racism, his hostility to Jews. He, he, he's not remembered very well, generally. Is that fair? 
I think he's a complex figure. And he probably he has to be viewed through the times in which he, he existed. Yeah, but not everyone was as virulent an anti-Semite or a racist as him. I don't think that's an excuse, is it? No, it's not. And I think that's certainly one of the one of the greatest flaws in Wilson, his 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 uh, racial attitudes. Um, I, I guess we can explain them in that he was he was raised in the South during the Civil War. His family had slaves, so he could never get past that. He just could not look at African-Americans as anything beyond what he saw them as as a child. So, yes, that is his great flaw. I, think yeah, and I, I mean, in, in, and there were many people who grew up in the South who maybe came from families of slaves in the 19-teens who didn't share that racism. I don't think that's an excuse, is it, Neil? Well, perhaps not an excuse. I'm just, I think it helps to explain his behavior. I think Wilson was someone who often thought he knew better than everyone else too. So he, he pretty Typical much- Typical of a Princeton. My first wife went to Princeton, so I'm very familiar with that. He, he looked down on most people and he, and he was a brilliant individual. So I think he, right. he did not someone who had a great deal of respect for most people who he considered to be his intellectual inferior. He had very little yeah. tolerance for those who- Yeah, and that, that reminds uh, people of, we all know who that reminds us of. Anyway, Neil, um, uh, your book, The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, uh, Wilson, Adams, and their clash over the American future. It's a really interesting narrative about this complicated entry of America, anything but inevitable into the First World War. We've talked about background. After the break, I want to talk about the crisis that precipitated the entry and what it all means. So we're going to be back with Neil uh, Lankto, the author of The Approaching Storm, in about 60 seconds. Stay with us, everyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We're back with Neil Lankto, the author of The Approaching Storm, a book about the American entry into the First World War. 
Uh, now, let's get into the details. Uh, what exactly happened in terms of this entry? When and how did America get into the war? And what was the real debate about between the three principal characters in, in your book? Well, Wilson was hoping to avoid getting into this war, but he saw the handwriting on the wall by the end of 1916. I mean, the Germans were kind of pushing him to do something to bring the parties together and hopefully then get lost. He didn't, the Germans didn't want Wilson involved in any peace settlement, but they, he, they were hoping he could bring them together and get the war ended because the Germans knew they could not win a long war. They were hoping to, we got to end it fast or we're going to lose. Right. When you say the Germans, you're talking about the, the military figures, Hindenburg and Ludendorff, who were increasingly controlling German politics. Yeah. Or were you thinking about German politicians or the Kaiser? I think the Kaiser was basically at this point a, a, a not an important figure in making the decisions. He was going along with what the military wanted, but I, we could put them all under the same umbrella. Um, I think the civil authorities um, were a little bit more sane at this point, but the military had come to this belief that they the war had to be won soon or all would be lost. Um, Wilson saw that coming because they, the Kaiser had even sent a communication across the Atlantic in the fall of 1916 to Wilson, written in English, basically warning that the Germans were going to resume unrestricted submarine warfare, which they had pulled back on earlier that year because they knew good Wilson pretty much threatened them that America is going to sever diplomatic ties and that's going to mean involvement in the war. Um, so the Germans had kind of been on their best behavior throughout much of 1916, but that was no longer going to continue because they knew they had to win the war soon. Uh, and once they saw that there was going to be no peace, successful peace treaty or, or, or ceasefire, uh, they'd floated their own attempt in, in December of 1916, and then Wilson did it also. They didn't go anywhere. They decided, we have to go for broke. We're going to resume unrestricted submarine warfare, and if America comes into the war, so be it. They won't make a difference because the war will be over in six months anyway. We'll starve the British uh, into submission and the war will be over and that will be it. That, that was the basically the very simplistic plan that the German military had. So uh, the Germans then go on and they sink the Lusitania. Uh, what, what month was that? That was in 1915. So that was that was that was a couple of years. Right. So, so what was the, the key event? Sorry, I, I, uh, what, what was the key sinking that? Um, that triggered the American entry? Well, there were there were three sinkings in March of 1917. So Wilson was informed by the Germans that we're changing our policy, unrestricted submarine warfare is back. Uh, Wilson was kind of hoping, okay, maybe they'll continue to follow, they'll, they'll back off, they don't want America in the war. But the Germans were like, nope, at this point, there's a quote in the book where the Kaiser says something, if Wilson wants his war, he can have it. No more, no more negotiations with America. So three ships get sunk in March 1917. Um, that that pushes Wilson in another direction. And the other thing that's very important is when there's a communication from Germany uh, to the Mexican, the German ambassador in Mexico, known as the Zimmerman Telegram, which basically right, right, right. tries to entice the Mexicans into kind of declaring war in the United States uh, with this promise that, you know, uh, we'll even help you get back uh, some of these parts of Mexico, which were taken from you, like in Arizona. So and, who's and shifting positions as as the, the Germans start? sinking more ships uh how does your your trinity of, of of teddy roosevelt woodrow wilson and jane adams how does this all play out in terms of the politics and public opinion 
Well, Roosevelt is 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 chomping at the bit. He wants to go to Europe and fight so badly. I mean, that's like the last thing he wants to do in his life. He he wants to go over. He even says, oh, "What a way to end my life would be to go over uh, with my with my 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 army, my uh, my volunteer." He's going to raise a group of volunteers to go over. He's been doing this for a couple of years and go over and get killed. That'd be the great way to end my end my career. He wants to do this so badly, but it's in Wilson's hands and the Wilson administration's hands. So he has to, he's going to have to go to them and sort of beg them almost to let him go over. Uh, and they eventually, of course, will tell him no, which will absolutely make him hate Woodrow Wilson even more. Um, so that's what's going on in Roosevelt's mind. He thinks that Wilson had waited too long anyway to get to this point. Uh, for Adams, she's very discouraged because she sees where things are going. She had thought that Wilson was on her side and Wilson wasn't as quite much a pacifist as she thought he was. He was someone who was a great politician. He knew Jane Adams was important from a political standpoint. She had a lot of influence. Uh, but when Adams goes to see Wilson in the White House in early 1917, he sees that war is coming. And he pretty much tells her that, no, we, we won't really be able to stop this. And I don't think it would be a good thing anyway, because if we don't get involved in this war, I won't be able to have any place in the peacemaking process. I'd be Were there, was Adams, do you think, um, a hardcore pacifist? Were there, I mean, had she been around in, I don't know, 1940 or 1941 after Pearl Harbor? Do you think she would have been against war then? That's an interesting question. I, I don't know, uh, because there were some of the pacifists during World War I who, who, who remain consistent. And in World War II still would not, uh, would not support the war effort. Then there were others who said, no, Hitler is a completely different thing. We have to... We have to support the war effort. And, and some Americans, of course, had some degree of sympathy with Hitler. Henry Ford, perhaps. Um, he's a minor player in your narrative. Is he a, a Wilsonian, and if that's an appropriate word to use? Well, Ford was somebody. He, he I have a quote in the book where he said, "I, I never, I haven't voted in years. I know nothing about politics." But because he was such a a, a seminal figure who everyone was fascinated by him. Right, he was the Elon Musk or the um, the Jeff Bezos of his age, essentially. Right, he, he was. I, I think that's a, I think that's a, a very a very good way to put it. And eventually, he kind of decides, like he Ford's a pacifist, so he decides that Wilson's a better person to back. And and Ford says, I'll 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 vote, I'll support Wilson in 1916. He gives the Democratic Party some money, and as, even at some point, Wilson asked Ford to run for Senate. Uh, even though Ford himself says, I know nothing about politics. And he almost wins, believe it or not. Roosevelt uh, went and spoke out against him because he thought Henry Ford was a pretty a pretty dumb <laughs> other than his his brilliance as an engineer and things like that. I have a quote in the book where Roosevelt said something like, uh, he knows nothing except about motors, but he knows... He, he, he's, because they're the same about Elon Musk today. <laughs> um, Neil, so... It's a wonderful story and a, and a tremendous read, but could one argue this is really much to do about nothing? That the American entry into the second uh, into the First World War was not of great significance. America didn't lose many troops. Their entry probably didn't affect the end of the war one way or the other. Or would you disagree with that? I would disagree with that because it, there's there's all kinds of alternate scenarios which I do touch on in the book. If America doesn't get involved in the war, it's, it's possible that. Uh, the Allies may have been forced to sue for peace. I mean, the Allies were going broke for one thing at that point. Which, which wouldn't have been a bad thing, now. actually. Had there been a, a negotiated peace, a kind of stalemate would have been better for everybody, the Allies and, and the Germans and the Americans, perhaps. Yes, there's, there's a, you know, uh, Bernstorff, who was the German ambassador in the United States, 
Who's Amiga. also in your book as a character, a minor character. Yes. Uh, he's carrying on. He's having affairs with American women in the book, which is interesting. Not Jane Addams, I hope. No, not Jane Addams. <laughs> they were doing wiretaps on the Wilson administration. Yeah. But uh, she was too virtuous to have sex with anyone, wasn't she, Jane Addams? <laughs> Mr. Mr. Wilson, uh, if, he, if he had stayed out of the war, it's possible there would have been this stalemate and democracy may have come to Germany in the 1920s instead of what happened that year. Yeah, there's a lot of what, I mean, there are so many what ifs in this, so many Mm -hmm. what ifs about how the world would have been different had the Americans not get involved. But so from your point of view, you think it was a good decision to enter the war, ultimately, all things being equal? I I think, yes, I think it probably was a good decision. Uh, the, the, the question, of course, is should we have gotten involved sooner? Should we have prepared sooner? Someone like yeah. Roosevelt. I mean, the Americans, uh, we just did a book about Churchill with um, Je- Jeffrey uh, Wheatcroft, a, a tremendous book. And Churchill, of course, had a, an American mother, very interested and in some ways ambivalent about America. Uh, but Wheatcroft reminds us that the Americans didn't play much of a role, not many American troops were actually killed in the war. What, about 50,000 compared to the Allies? or the, the, the German or Russian troops. Yeah, that, that's actually true. If the war had gone on longer, America's role would have been much more significant. I think if we had, if it had gone to 1919, there would have been, I don't know how many million American troops. They were coming over like every week. And actually, if there had been more American troops that had done the fighting, I think Wilson would have had an easier time at Versailles than he did. Right, and uh, that's the real legacy, isn't it? Ultimately of this is not so much America's involvement in the war, yeah. But America's involvement in the peace, the Paris Peace Conference of 1919, and Wilson's famous 14 points, the peace conference that was anything ultimately peace conference. How much um, accountability do you think Wilson has for fucking the world, uh, to to use some uh, carefully calibrated language, for fucking the world up after the First World War? I think, I don't know if we can all blame it on Wilson. Wilson was constrained. Well, we can, Neil, because he's not around to defend himself. (laughs) Okay. I mean, I think Wilson in some ways never was as familiar with European, the European situation did not have a, I don't think he, he came to to the study of it late. Um, And this is particularly troubling for a know-it-all like Wilson. I mean, for some people, perhaps a Harry Truman or, or even an FDR, they would have had, a learning curve, but he doesn't seem to be a man willing to learn anything. He thought he knew everything in the first place, right? No, and he he gave a great deal of trust to to uh, Colonel House, who I just right. Who's another character in the book? Another flawed, fascinatingly flawed figure who had an outsized influence on twentieth century history. Yeah, I mean, House is someone who has no position in the government, but he is. He Wilson is using him as sort of to connect to conduct diplomacy, uh, and and. And doing this all all during the war between 1914 and 1918, he's got House going to Europe, House talking to all the European powers and the heads of state. And then at Versailles, House tries to do even more. And then that's finally when Wilson has this epiphany. That right. And he, we, we, know, we remember him as a Colonel House, but he wasn't a Colonel, which perhaps sums him up. Yeah, he was not. He was not a colonel, and he was another one who was an amateur diplomat who thought he knew more than he did, and he was in some ways made mincemeat. Uh, by the, the these European diplomats who who were much more cagey and much more sophisticated and, and certainly understood the European situation much better than Wilson House ever could understand. I think Roosevelt knew much more than they did. Roosevelt. What had about a, the other Roosevelt at this time? Uh, I, did, I was wondering. He doesn't show up too much in the book. 
But uh, does FDR have any role in this narrative? I mean, he came to shape American history centrally in the, this, the first half of the 20th century, perhaps the most influential American president in history. Uh, what was he doing during all this? Well, FDR was in the Wilson administration. He was assistant secretary of the Navy. Um, he was still close to, he always called Teddy Roosevelt. He was, his, I think he's fifth cousin, but he would call him Uncle Ted. Uh, mm-hmm. Because he was married to, you know, Eleanor was uh, was Theodore's um, niece. So he actually, FDR kept in contact with both sides uh, during this time. And FDR, in, in many ways, leaned more towards TR's, Teddy Roosevelt's way of views of preparedness as far as the country needed to be prepared for uh, war uh, and wanted to beef up the Navy. And one thing I do think, I think FDR learned lessons from what happened at this time that the country was not really ready for World War One, and we were much more ready for World War Two. You know, he gets the draft on. Even though they took another, you know, it wasn't as if they jumped into the Second World War, and that's another story, maybe another subject of another book, Neil. Uh, finally, on uh, February 24th, 2022, as Russia invades Ukraine, a very sad day in world history, is there anything we can learn from your book that might help us make sense of the approaching storm in the Ukraine? I think it's again, it's it's something that is always important for American foreign policy is what do we do in these crises? What is our responsibility? And, and are we in a position to do anything at this point to to address what's going on? I think that was that was the question 108 years ago. And I think it's the question today and what the Biden administration is going to figure out in the coming weeks. If not do coming you think weeks. that the the car, the Tucker Carlson, Donald Trump, position on Russia, relative appeasers, do you think that that will become a more central plank in the Republican Party, or is it just the thinking of of, of, of lunatics? <laughs> I, I don't think it will be the central. I, I think it will maybe be a fringe view, I, I believe. It's just my prediction on, as of this moment. But I, what's gone on in the Republican Party in the last few years is, is, is so unpredictable. It's impossible to see what they're going to say uh, two weeks from now. So that would be my yeah. sense. Well, who knows what, where we're going to be in Ukraine in two weeks. But we need historians like Neil Lankto to really help us make sense of our current predicament. His book, The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and Their Clash Over America's Future is interesting in its own right. And it's also prescient uh, of American uh, the American appearance, domination of international politics in the 20th century. It's the beginning of America's internationalist history. So it's a must-read book. Uh, Neil, what else should people be reading in addition to your Approaching the Storm uh, in late February 2022? Well, the recent Beatles documentary, uh, the Let It Be documentary. Which yeah, I love that. I watched it. It was excellent. Yes, and it, it made me think of Mark Lewison, who is... Those of you, some of your viewers or listeners might know of him. He is the foremost Beatle historian. Uh, his first book, he's doing a trilogy on the Beatles. His first book, Tune In, which came out several years ago, is is outstanding. I would recommend it. Do you know and him? I don't know him. Uh, I, I, I can't remember the show. His next book comes out. He's been working on it. Everyone's hoping he can get these done because they're... Yeah. they're and he puts so much work into them, but they're, they are truly... Well, just as your book gets us to rethink uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Woodrow Wilson and Jane Addams, his stuff certainly 
well, that that movie made us rethink Harrison and particularly Harrison, certainly Lennon and McCartney. Uh, Neil Langto, congratulations again on your new book, The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams and Their Clash Over American History. Finally, Neil, we're ending our show with some thoughts from all our guests uh, in, in response to this question. Uh, Neil Langto, the author of Approaching Storm, who's in charge? Uh, technology these days is in charge. We're totally controlled by these computers, this internet. Uh, look at us right now communicating this way, 3,000 miles apart. We're so dependent on it. I lost my internet last week for a few days. And it was You see how helpless we all are to it in, in this world that we're living in today. So I, I do believe we are slaves, unfortunately, to, to technology in the 21st century. I think a lot of us would completely fall apart without our devices and our internet and uh, our other modern electronic conveniences.